All right, let's go and get started this morning. Let me begin by opening us with the word of prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning um, for the Lord's Day, for the opportunity we have to rest and to worship, to gather as your people, to be blessed by the presence of your spirit, to receive Christ again um, given for us in word and sacrament. Father, this morning as we prepare um, again um, for uh, you to renew your covenant with us, we pray that you would bless us um, even as we continue to consider um, what it means for us to be this church in this place at this time, and especially as we think about what it means to be those who are called to the joy of the resurrection. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we have been going um, for the last, I think this is the seventh week now, um, just doing a class that's sort of the core values of Colleyville Presbyterian Church. What does it mean for us to be um, a church here in this community at this time, um, with the people that are assembled with us and that, that make up our congregation? What, what does it look like in terms of our life together? So just to, to briefly review some of the things we've talked about, especially I know some of you have been in, in Mike's class um, for the last um, six weeks or so. Um, we started by talking about um, uh, union with Christ, that that is our core value as a church, that we want to be a place where union with Christ is held up as the center of who we are called to be as Christians, that our life comes from Him, that we abide with Him, um, that all of our life is oriented around um, the communion that we have with the risen Savior um, through the power of the Spirit that draws us into the eternal life of the triune God, into the bosom of the Father, even as Christ is hidden there. Um, and, and this is really important, I think, that, that union with Christ is at the foundation of our church's life with one another. Uh, we then talked about means of grace um, and how the means of grace Word, sacrament, and prayer are the means by which we believe that we actually abide with Christ and experience that union. That that union is something that we don't just experience um, um, in an on, sort of on-off switch kind of way, but we actually grow in our union with Jesus over time. And the way that we grow with Him is by abiding with Him. <clears throat> and the primary ways in which we abide with Him is by receiving His presence given to us, mediated by the Scriptures, mediated by the sacraments, mediated through prayer and that these are actually all ways in which Christ is mediated through to us we then talked about the centrality of the Lord's Day um, the way in which we really want um, the Sabbath practices to be at the heart of our church's life with one another um, to set aside time for worship and rest each Lord's Day is the heart of who we are as as a church and a part of the a huge part of this reason is not only because it's commanded by God but because it's actually good for us because it's when we gather on the Lord's Day, especially um, as the body of Christ assembled in his presence, that Jesus gives himself to us most primarily. That word, sacrament, and prayer are means of grace that are most centrally available to us um, in the Lord's Day worship service. Uh, when God comes and renews his covenant with us again. And we talked about how our worship service has this model of a covenant renewal. That the Lord himself renews his covenant with us each Sunday morning. And that we, when we gather, we gather as the whole church. We intentionally don't have age-segregated worship or, or different kinds of worship for different kinds of people. We welcome children in our worship service because we believe that that renewal of the covenant is the central feature of our life with God. The word, sacrament and prayer, the preaching of the word, the, the Lord's Supper week by week, the prayers that we sing and pray together. Those are all central to what it means to abide with Christ. And so we want everyone to experience that who's a part of our church family. Um, we then talked about the reality that um, we are uh, most fundamentally a Christian church. 
um, that this is our primary commitment is just simply to be a church that is assembled and united in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, what we require for membership in our church is simply adherence to what we would call Apostles' Creed Christianity, um, the ability to articulate faith and trust in Jesus in a, in a historic and orthodox way. And yet, we're also uh, a Reformed church, and we're, we're happy to be a Reformed church. We're happy to be Protestant. And so we talked about some of the distinctives of that, of that Reformation spirit that is a part of the tradition that our church operates in, that it's far broader than simply um, uh, what we call tulip, right? Total depravity, et cetera, et cetera. But actually to be reformed means a, a number of things about how we view the scriptures, how we view all of life as being sacred to God, um, how we view um, all, just all sorts of things um, through the lens of, of that Protestant um, and Reformation tradition that we inhabit. Uh, we talked about intentional soul care, that part of what it means to be part of our church is to be under um, the authority of your pastors and your elders, um, that your pastors seek to be available to you, that Patrick and I don't want to be CEOs or administrators or whatever other model you might have for a pastoral life, but, but we actually want to do our best to watch over your souls, to meet with you, to pray with you, to hear uh, from you. We talked about how church discipline is a part of the life of our church, and that's actually a good thing. Um, that you have spiritual leadership that is invested in you um, and will call you to account if necessary. That intentional soul care from birth to death is a huge part of what we want to be as a church. And then last week we talked about vocations and hospitality. We talked about the reality that one of the core values for our church is that we want to honor what we might call ordinary vocations, right? Um, that, that we don't believe that it's necessary for you to be a missionary or a pastor or, or some kind of full-time Christian worker in order to please God. Those things are all wonderful callings. They're distinctive callings, um, especially the call to ordain ministry. And yet we also want to honor uh, ordinary callings, ordinary vocations, that um, the calling to be a mother or to be a father, the calling to be a school teacher, the calling to be a student, um, all of these, whatever it might be for you, um, is a way in which you are called to honor God and to please Him. And when you offer up your service to Him in that way, um, he actually delights in it and, and, and receives it and establishes the work of your hands. Um, and we want this to be a freeing thing, that we want to dignify ordinary vocations in the life of our church. And that actually this is the primary way that we fulfill the mission of our church. The mission of our church is not some third thing out there that we all need to get on board with. It's to be faithful in the place where God has called you and put you. You are the mission of the church in the ordinary vocations that God has given you. And then we finally talked about hospitality, that hospitality is one of the frameworks we want to use um, to describe the life of our church, that, that we are, are gathered together and we receive Christ um, graciously from the Father, and because of the welcome that we have received in Christ, we are then called to extend that welcome to others. And this looks like being good hosts on Sundays, on Sunday mornings, um, to those who are guests in our midst. This means inviting people into our homes, inviting people into our lives, um, delighting to, to welcome the stranger instead of reject them. That this is something that we want to be core at the core of the life of our church together. So those are some of the things that we've talked about, the first kind of eight core values. Any questions about any of those things before we jump into our last core value this morning? Okay, I'll just say if if you've missed any of those classes, the audio is available online on our website under resources, um, Sunday School Audio. It's all right there. 
would encourage you to listen to some of those classes if you've missed them. I think they're just important articulations of what we want to be as a church together. So this final core value that I want us to talk about this morning is the core value of what I've described as resurrection joy. Resurrection joy. This is something that I really want to be central to the life of our church, that we are joyful people, and we're joyful people not just for, I don't know, some arbitrary reason or because God says to be joyful, but because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his resurrection, his defeat of death and sin, and his bodily resurrection from the dead on the third day is the thing that gives us joy and hope and confidence, and that joy and hope and confidence permeates our life together and becomes something that is deeply distinctive about who we are. It's really fascinating if you just sort of do a word search on the the word joy, just the English word joy um, in the New Testament, just to see how much it's talked about in the epistles, how much the apostles are talking about joy as a central feature of the Christian life. It's really a remarkable thing. Just a few examples of that. 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul says, And you became imitators of us, and of the Lord. Who is the Lord there? The Lord is the Lord Jesus, of course. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul's saying there that, that as he preaches the gospel to the Thessalonians, what they're being called to is to receive the word in affliction, yes, and suffering and difficulty and all those things, but with the joy of the Spirit, that this is something they actually learned from Paul. They saw it in him, this kind of delight and joy and confidence and even laughter because of the good things that God has done. And the joy of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that the joyful um, posture of the Lord Jesus is something that they received and have become imitators of. Um, Paul, of course, in Philippians 4, gives joy as a, as a command. It's not just a suggestion, right, or a, or a sort of, this is a, you know, if you're really... Um, things are going well. No, it's a command in all circumstances, Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that even that in the Lord is so important there. Paul's not telling us to just rejoice, but to rejoice in union with the joyful one, right? Rejoice in union with Jesus Christ. Rejoice in union with him and with his resurrection. I love this quote um, from William Tyndale, um, his prologue to the New Testament in 1526, one of the earliest, of course, translations of the New Testament into the English language. And he's got you know, some funny spellings here because of the ways in which English was different then than it is now. But he says, uh, this was what he chose to put on sort of the, you know, the, the front page um, after you opened the cover of his New Testament. Uh, Euangelio, that we call gospel, is a Greek word and signifieth good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that makes a man's heart glad and maketh him sing, dance, and leap for joy. I love that. I love that that's what Tyndale wanted uh, his English-speaking readers to first encounter as they opened for the first time the New Testament in their spoken language, in a language that they could read and hear and understand. He wanted them to hear that what they were about to encounter in this New Testament was glad tidings, was joyful news, were things to rejoice about, um, to make them sing, dance, and leap for joy. And of course, that language comes directly out of Jesus' own ministry and description of his own ministry, um, that, that this is what 
people were doing in response to him. Um, they were singing, dancing, and leaping for joy. So it's important to remember that our joy is not inherent in ourselves. It's not something we stir up inside of us. It's not something that we um, somehow discipline ourselves to feel. Our joy is experienced in our union with Jesus. We receive our joy from him. And I think that's such a central feature of what it means for us to be a joyful people, um, that our joy is centered and received from the risen Christ and our union with him. Think about just for a moment some of the ways in which Jesus talked about joy, especially in reference to his death and resurrection. John 15, 11, this is the night before Jesus died, of course, as he speaks to his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Right? What Jesus is wanting to do in his death and resurrection is to, is to take the joy that he has, the joy that is found in being the beloved son of the Father, and being, and being completely safe and secure um, in his bosom and his love, right? not being afraid, not being anxious, um, not being worried, um, knowing that, that all things come to a glad end, uh, because of the steadfast love of the Father, that Jesus' joy about that, even on the night before his death, right, the night before he knew that he would be crucified in the morning, Jesus didn't go to his death anxious and worried about what might happen on the other side, right? He goes to the grave commending his spirit to the Father, entrusting himself to him, knowing that the Father will hear his prayer, that he will deliver him from death on the third day. And Jesus says, the joy that I have, even facing affliction, I want to be in you. I want you to receive my life given to you, and especially this joyfulness, this delight, and and, and, and all the promises of God coming true, that your joy may be full. And then John 16, Jesus says a little while later that same night, so also you have sorrow now. He's talking about when he's going to depart from them. He's going to go away and they'll be sorrowful. He's talking about his death there, of course. And then he says, but I will see you again. There he's talking about not just seeing them on the last day, but seeing them in the upper room after he is resurrected and risen from the dead. He says, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Why does no one take the joy from them after the resurrection of Christ? Because the disciples realize, well, there's nothing that can happen to us, right? There's nothing to be afraid of any longer. If death itself is defeated in the work of Christ, what is there to be sad about ultimately? I think that's a fun, it's, it's fascinating, right, to look at the disciples and the, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the Gospel of Mark, their fearfulness, their, their pettiness, their stubbornness, but all of that changes after the resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit. And they receive joy and confidence. They become fearless in a new way. And I think it's because their life becomes rooted in the risen Christ, that this becomes actually the path for them. Remember that Jesus, even as he went to his death, anticipated the joy that was before him. Hebrews 12 tells us to imitate Jesus by looking to him, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of God. As Jesus went through the way of the cross, through the way of suffering, he did so because of the joy that was set before him, the joy of his resurrection, the joy of his restoration to the right hand of the Father, the joy of victory 
um, was the thing that propelled him and, and, and that he anticipated. And, and in the same way, we're called to imitate Jesus in that way. Um, after Jesus' resurrection, in the account of Luke, when Jesus appears in Luke 24, and it says, while they still disbelieved for joy and marveling. I love the way that Luke chose to record what the disciples felt in that moment when they saw the risen Christ for the first time. They disbelieved for joy and they marveled. It's like this, you know, we, we, we use that phrase all the time, right? It's too good to be true, right? We use it about really dumb things sometimes, right? But this really was like too good to be true, that the crucified one, the one that they had seen nailed to a cross, naked and bleeding and dying and buried in a tomb, this one in his body now lived before them and invited them to touch his hands and to, to eat with them. And he blessed them with his bread. Like, they disbelieved for joy and they marveled. And after his ascension, at the end of 24, it says that they worshipped him. They worshipped the Christ and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. They were set free um, from their sadness because of the joy of the risen Christ. And even thinking about uh, Matthew 28, this is what Jesus, his first words, um, and he does this consistently um, in his resurrection appearances to the two women after his resurrection were, do not be afraid, right? Do not be afraid. And I think that is in so many ways the core announcement of the risen Christ is that there's no reason for fear. Do not be afraid any longer, for I have conquered death. So this is the kind of spirit I think that we want to be at the center of our church's life. It's one of our core values is to embody this kind of joyful confidence and hope and even delight. Um, and we'll talk some about, you know, we can doesn't mean we're not sad, but it means that joy is the central tenor of who we are. I love this quote from Robert Hodgkins. Christians ought to be celebrating constantly, he says. We ought to be preoccupied with parties, banquets, feasts, and merriment. We ought to give ourselves over to celebrations of joy because we have been liberated from the fear of life and the fear of death. We ought to attract people to the church quite literally by the sheer pleasure there is in being a Christian. I love that description. I mean, Christians should be the happiest people of all, right? I mean, what, what do we have? What do we lack that we don't have, right? Nothing. All things have been given to us in Jesus Christ. What are we afraid of? Nothing. When we die, when we grow old and die and get sick, it's only a short sleep, right? As the poets say. And then resurrection. And then resurrection. All things come to a glad end if you're in Christ. What is there to be afraid of? What is there to be sad about ultimately? Now we're not saying, and see this in the back page, we're not saying that Christians are never sad or we should never engage in laments. Of course we do. We are a suffering people. Right? We've been talking about that in the Gospel of Mark. We're following Jesus on the way of the cross. Of course there's suffering involved. Of course there's difficulty. We live in a fallen world. We, we follow after a crucified Messiah. But we do so as those whose life is hidden with the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is rejoicing now at the Father's right hand. Right? He is not sad. He's not unhappy. And we share with him in that joy. And it means the deepest, and this is what I'm trying to say, the, the deepest note under all the music of our life is a note of joy. 
right? We don't believe in the shape of our lives being that of a tragedy, right? You know, the shape of a tragedy is you begin down here and you get up high and then you fall down at the end, right? If you look at Shakespeare or whatever, like that's what it happens in a tragedy. Now we believe in comedy, right? We're, we tell comedies, right? We, we start up here and then, yeah, things will go wrong, right? There'll be bumps along the way. We'll get down to the bottom of the U, but the com- how you know it's a comedy is that it, it goes up at the end, right? Right? Think about Much Ado About Nothing or you know, some of the great classic Shakespeare tragedies. And that we believe that's the shape of history. That's the shape of our lives. That yes, there, there will be a downward slope, but the ultimate end is one that always goes up and up and up and never ends. And so our lives are fundamentally a comedy, not a tragedy. It ends at a wedding. It does. Exactly right. G.K. Chesterton says, man is more himself, and he doesn't mean men, but humanity. Man is more himself, man is more man-like, when joy is the fundamental thing in him, and grief the superficial. That's what we're trying to say, that joy is the fundamental thing that is true about us, not grief. Grief is the superficial thing. Paul speaks in this way about grief in 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Paul's talking about death there, right? The death of beloved friends or family members. And he says, even in death, yes, you grieve, but you don't grieve as those without hope. And why do you not have hope? Or why do you have hope? Why do you not simply grieve? Because since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, through Christ, in Christ, in union with him, God will bring with Christ those who have fallen asleep. That ultimately death has been conquered in the resurrection of Christ. And so there is no need for sadness in some fundamental way. Are there any thoughts about some of that before we, I want to talk about some of the ways this works itself out in the life of our church for a few minutes. But any, <clears throat> any thoughts about what I'm describing here in terms of this resurrection joy that I want to be true for us as a congregation? Comments, questions. Yeah, James. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. No worship. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So James is saying there's a natural link between worship and this kind of joy. And I think that's right. Um, the joy comes in the freedom of adoring the risen Christ and, and worship, submitting to his reign and rule and knowing that our lives are hidden and secure in him. Um, that's right. That frees us to rejoice. Yeah. Anything else? Any other questions or comments? All right, let me talk a little bit about some of the ways that I want to, I, I hope that this works itself out practically in the life of our church. If this is one of our core values, what does this mean? Um, so first is what James pointed out just now, that, that I think that I want, and I, I believe that this is true, um, that our worship on Sunday mornings is one that holds forth the risen Christ and invites us to rejoice in Him. This doesn't mean that there isn't opportunities for lament in our worship. 
um, that we don't confess our sins. Of course, we do every week. Um, and sometimes we do. We sing songs that are more lament-like, um, or we have, you know, when we're going through the Psalms, sometimes we preach on Psalms of lament, and we talk about suffering and sadness and those kinds of things. Um, but the fundamental note, I think, of our worship on Sunday morning is not a dirge. It's not sadness. It's not, you know, a lament. It's, a, it's, a, it's rejoicing. It's joy. And I, I really want this to be true about our worship. And this is something that, that I think is true for us. This is one of the reasons why I've made a practice now for three or four years of greeting you every Sunday morning with the words, Christ is risen. Right? I do that before our worship every Sunday, before we do announcements. It's the first words you hear me say um, after good morning. Christ is risen. And you know to respond, right? He is risen indeed. That's what you say. We say that back and forth. And part of the reason we do that every Sunday here, not just on Easter Sunday, we do it like in a really big way on Easter, but we do it every Sunday because every Sunday is the memorial of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That's why we worship on the Lord's Day. It is a remembrance. It is a participation in his resurrection, in his resurrection life. Um, I, I, I really want this to be the general tenor of our worship service overall, that our worship service is an opportunity to rejoice this is why we do things like sing the doxology right after the confession and then the declaration of forgiveness, right? Because the doxology is joyful, right? Praise God from him all, all things flow, right? Um, and we, we sing that together with glad hearts and we, we know the, the words by heart and so we can sing them freely as a way to give room and space and articulation for the joy of the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins are forgiven, so we rejoice. And then so on throughout the service. Um, I really hope that this is true, and it's certainly my desire um, that we have a worship service that focuses on the victory of Jesus Christ over death and sin, and that we're called into participation in that in our worship together. One of the ways it works out practically in life of our church and our worship service is the way in which we take the Lord's Supper. I think that we, partly just the fact that we do this every week, where we always have the Lord's Supper, in our worship service on Sunday mornings, and, and the way that we do it, right, we, we, we don't, I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking other churches that do things differently, but, like, we don't have little wafers, and part of the reason we don't have little wafers is because it's not just a remembrance of the death of Christ, it's a feast of resurrection, right, and so we have, I think, good bread, right, that tastes good, and you can, like, take a big chunk if you want, because there's lots of it. There's always plenty left over. You take more if you want, you know? There's lots. Um, we have wine that's, I think, nice. I mean, it's not like the most expensive wine ever, but it's, it's strong and it's sweet, and you can feel it as you drink it, right? It feels like a feast to me. Like it's a little minute, like, and that's why we um, do things like when the pastor gets up here, Patrick or I, whoever's doing the service, we don't spend a lot of time like, trying to convince you that you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper because you might not be worthy. Um, there are other churches where I think that's more the tenor. And I just want to gently say that we don't do that. And the reason we don't do that is because we don't think you should primarily be locating your worthiness for the Lord's Supper in yourself. But rather you've confessed your sins, right? You've already done that in the service, right? And you've heard the declaration of the forgiveness of your sins by someone who has the authority of Jesus Christ to declare that to you. So what is there to be afraid of? What, how much more worthy do you need to get 
than being cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, right? And so when we, when we do the table, we do it as an invitation. We say, come and feast on Christ, right? Come and express again your faith and trust in Him. Don't be afraid. Come and eat, all who are hungry, right? We feel like that's the tenor of the Scriptures. That's a joyful thing. Even the way that we, the liturgical things we do, right? Right, Alleluia, Christ our sacrifice has been, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the what? The feast. Alleluia. Right, those are Paul's words. Um, we, we, we want to delight in the Lord's Supper. We want it to be a joyful thing. Um, yes, it's, yes, it is a, um, a solemn feast, right? It's not like a Super Bowl party or something, right? But it's a feast, and it's joyful. And that's, and that's something that we want to be at the, the heart of our life together. Um, a second point is just pastoral leadership that, that um, eschews scolding and legalism and holds forth the joyful certainty of God's gracious love for us in Jesus Christ. Um, I really, that's something I think for Patrick and I both that is true, that, that yes, yeah, sometimes in our preaching or in our instruction, we have to say hard things or we have to call people to repentance or, or you know, but generally, this is what I want to be true about our pastoral leadership, that we are joyfully pointing you towards all the steadfast love of God that has been made certain for you in the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? That's what we want to be at the heart of, of how our church functions together. The good news that you hear each week is hopefully actually good news for you, right? It's not just something where we say, well, you failed again this week to do the things you're supposed to do. Try better. No, a declaration of the glad tidings of God's pronouncement of love over you in Christ. This is a, <clears throat> a little selection from a philosophy ministry paper that I wrote for you all five and a half years ago now when I, you were considering making me your pastor in May of 2014. Um, I wrote some, a document that sort of described what I wanted to be some of the emphases of my ministry among you if you called me as your pastor. And this is one of the things I talked about. I said, I'm committed to a pastoral ministry which seeks to build up and not destroy. Though fear and guilt often seem to be effective motivations for the Christian life, and sometimes they are, right? They can be effective, or at least apparently effective. Right? You can achieve a certain kind of unity and momentum through fear and guilt. But I said, though fear and guilt can seem to be effective motivations for the Christian life, rather in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... Death itself has been defeated. And so the basic gospel message is the same as the one spoken by the angels to the women who first discovered the empty tomb 2,000 years ago. Do not be afraid. That's, in some ways, the fundamental thing I want you to hear from me. Do not be afraid. Though we see now in a, through a grass glass darkly, one day we will see face to face and we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's the trajectory of who we are as a people. And so my, as a pastor, my calling is not to threaten or frighten God's people into submission, but to help them imagine in new ways the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for them and to dream with them all the wonders he has prepared for those who love him. For in Jesus, we've been given a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I think that's, that's something I really want to be fundamentally true about our life as a church. Um, our church also has a focus on feasting and fellowship. 
right? This is something that has become normative for our life together. We have um, a fellowship meals on the first Sunday of every month. We also have special feasts throughout the church year, right? We have in a few weeks um, a Christmas carol service preparing for Christmas on the 15th, I think, um, in the evening where we'll sing carols and then we'll um, have a, uh, desserts and, and just good stuff together as a church. Um, on Monday, Thursday, we have a worship service followed by a feast together, right? As we, we prepare, we remember the, 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 the Last Supper and the institution of this meal and the glad news of the resurrection, right? We have a Palm Sunday um, sort of Easter egg hunt um, where we all get together and remember the joy of, of Christ even as he goes up to his death. He is motivated by joy. And the, the, the glad tidings of the good, like we, ha- we feast together, but we feast on the Lord's Day. We feast in ways that are oriented around the life of Jesus, right? Because we're remembering together the glad tidings and the good news of what he has done for us. And hopefully this focus on feasting and fellowship is not just something we're doing here um, as, as uh, on Sunday mornings um, or together as a church on other occasions, in formal ways, but actually this is something that's permeating your life, that you are feasting with others and inviting them into your feast. In many ways, that's what hospitality is. And we have a focus here, I think, not only on the crucifixion and death of Jesus, but also on his resurrection, the resurrection of his body and the resurrection of our bodies. Um, This is something I try to talk about a lot as a pastor, is the, the centrality of the resurrection of the body. And how that is your fundamental hope as a Christian. Your hope is not simply um, that one day you'll die and your soul will go be with Jesus and then that's it. No, that is good and that is wonderful news. One day you will die and your soul will go to be with Jesus. But there will be a better day. A yet more bright day, right? A day when all the dead will rise in Christ. When the new heavens and the new earth will be made by his command. And we'll live for him eternally in physical bodily existence, free from sin and suffering of all kind. That, that this, we believe, is the fundamental Christian hope that's held out for us. And so we seek to make that hope central for our life together. Um, we have an optimistic eschatology here. Um, what I mean by that is that I do not think, and I think generally speaking, I can confidently say the leadership of our church, others who are in leadership in our church, do not think that the general trend of human history is that kind of tragedy shape, right? That, that we had a golden age, I don't know, in 1500 or something, and then everything sort of just is going to decline from there on out until um, it gets really, really, really bad at the end, and then Jesus just sort of snatches us out of the fire, and we all somehow make it to heaven by the skin of our teeth. Like, we don't think that's the story of history, Actually, we think that history is, we're on the upward slope, right? We're on the upward slope. Actually, the, the, the bottom was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in many ways, right? The ultimate sin of the human race. And ever since that time, after the resurrection three days later, things have been going up. And yeah, it's, it's, a, you know, it's a little bumpy at times. There's sometimes just one step forward, two steps back. But generally, we think, I think, the trajectory of human history is one that moves in a positive direction and has a glad end. Remember Jesus' words, right? Go therefore into all the nations and make disciples of all the nations, right? All authority has been given to me. Make disciples of all the nations. And I think that 
That's a promise that Jesus intends to keep, that all the nations will be discipled by the Lord Jesus, that in time and space he is Lord of the nations and he will make them his domain. And so this means that I generally think that human history is like the world will become more and more Christian and not less. And actually, I think if you read actually history in in an unbiased way, you see that this is coming to pass, that there are. um, The nations are being discipled. Yes, it's slow and halting at times, and we don't know exactly what's next. But I think we can be confident that this is what's to come, that the disciples, I mean, that the nations will be discipled through Jesus and through his church, and that history itself will have a glad end. And I'm just, just throwing there for fun, like, we also don't know how long human history will be. Um, I often think that, you know, it's very likely that we're still in early days of the church, that, you know, much of the immaturity in our world today um, is because we're still early early on. Jesus is a long time frame, right? He's going to bring out the discipleship of the nations, and maybe we have 8,000 more years of human history ahead of us, right? And they'll look back at, you know, the early 20th century or 21st century in, you know, a thousand years and say, hey, they, they had some crazy ideas then, you know, about whatever, fill in the blank. I I tend to think that's actually the case, um, personally. Um, but in any case, that, that optimistic eschatology is something you're going to find here, that we, we're not going to be trying to warn you all the time about how bad things are going to be. We're going to be reminding you of how good things are and will be in Jesus Christ. And then finally, we just want to see an, an unfeigned, even a sort of childlike, we might say, right? We can say that. We can be like children. I even a naive kind of delight and joy. We want that kind of unfeigned embrace of joy to be something that is at the center of the life of our church. We want to be like Nathaniel, right? People in whom there is no guile, right? Uh, and innocence even um, in Christ. We think that is offered to us. And it's something that I want to see um, be a part of our church life and community. And again, no one is saying that nobody can be sad here or that you can't have hard things. We talk about hard things a lot, but the deepest note is one of joy and delight. And there has to be a kind of childlikeness for that to be true, right? A kind of willingness to say, yeah, I don't know how it's all going to work out, but it is, right? Um, I heard this week somebody talk about a, a greeting that someone would also often say when they asked him how he was doing. He would say, um, Jesus is on his throne. Everything is going exactly right, and God loves me. Like that's, I mean, in some ways, that's a little kind of, it's kind of naive, you know, like, who are you to say everything's going right? But that's like actually a pretty good description, I think, of the joy that we're given, right? How are you? Well, Jesus is on his throne. Everything is going exactly right, and God loves me. That's a good summary of the, what we're kind of talking about here. All right, any final questions or comments about any of that before? We wrap up in a few minutes. I know I've thrown a lot at you to think about. Anything at all? Do you all sense this, what I'm talking about in our church? Are we totally missing it? Yes, ma'am. Mm. Because we try to always be 
Yeah, that's right. That's a great testament, Kendra. I appreciate that. So the joy brought you in. That's good. Yeah, and, yeah, and that's part of the reason why I love the church calendar because it gives us a concrete opportunities um, throughout the year to really express this kind of joy. And I'm so glad you guys are about to go through Advent and Christmas with us because that's another really, I think, fundamental time when our church is able to really articulate that kind of joy. And yeah, Easter is, I mean, there's no better day of the year than Easter Sunday, right? You know, I mean, y'all can disagree, but that's where I'm at. Um, that, that's, that's the best day of the year. Um, and it's because we all get to be together and say hallelujah like a million times, right? And remember, there's nothing to be afraid of because Jesus is risen from the dead. What, what else? Any other questions or thoughts? Yeah, Alyssa. Yes. Right. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's a great point from the list is making that that the Lord's Day. We really this is central. If we're going to make the Lord's Day central to our life as a church and our life and our families, hopefully it's because we're making the Lord's Day a feast day, right? Not a day of duty and obligation in some heavy-handed way but like in our house Sunday is the day when you get extra dessert you know and you get like because it's a feast day but you shouldn't you should not fast on the Lord's Day friends like you should not be doing that you should come and experience and taste and articulate and experience in physical tangible ways the joy that is yours in Jesus Christ and most centrally in his resurrection Every, every Lord's Day is a feast day. Anything else? Yeah, Luann? By faith? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, yeah, singing is definitely one of the best ways, I think, to, to, to lean into joy, right? Um, and that can look different for different ones of us, like the kinds of things that we sing, that kind of thing. But yeah, I think sing, there's a, definitely a connection between joy and song. Um, and I think that's a really profound connection for us. Yeah, Mike. <clears throat> summon up joy right yeah yeah you weren't really you weren't really planning to be joyful that night but all of a sudden you're laughing right yeah Right. 
Right, right. Yeah, hopefully everybody heard what, what Mike just said. He was talking about the role of the liturgy on Sunday mornings in terms of this, this command to rejoice, that when we come on Sundays, um, we don't just leave it up to you to figure out how you want to feel. We actually give you words to say that come from the scriptures um, that you take on your lips. And they, yeah, they're intended to shape your emotions and your hearts. Um, they're intended to draw you into joyfulness. And in some ways, that's one of the great gifts and reasons why making the Lord's Day a discipline in your life is so fundamental because it says, I'm not just going to let my disposition toward life be up to me. I'm going to go somewhere and be instructed and grow and submit even to, a, to a, a, an exercise and a, and a practice and an invitation. And I think that's right. I think we all need that. Joy is something that's so hard to maintain on our own. We have to receive it from the union of our union with Christ. Right? We have to share in his joy. And that's what we're wanting to experience on Sunday mornings most fundamentally. Yeah, Eric, one last comment and then we'll wrap up. Yeah, I would say we're not trying to manipulate you because we're being really straightforward about it, right? <laughs> like, like if you want to know how I want you to feel in the worship service, you can pick up that paper back there and read it, right? Right? Like, that's, that's going to tell. Like, so I would, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, but I think that is an important thing that we're, we're actually really straight. We believe that there's a pedagogy to our worship. And absolutely, there's a, there's a, there's a um, we're motivated in a particular way. There's an agenda. That's what I'm trying to say. Yes, and the agenda is for you to rejoice in Christ and what he's done for you and his victory over de- of sin and death especially. All right, let's stand and pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus Christ, how you have loved us with the love that is steadfast and eternal. We thank you that because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the one to whom we are united, uh, we are able to enter into joy. Uh, not partially, but fully, uh, through him who is our life, through him, the one in whom we rejoice. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.